Hi, welcome to Choose Wisely. I'm Caroline Nelson, and the most common question I get is, how did you buy a ranch? (laughs) And today I'm going to talk about that. And maybe based on the episode title, you're going to pick up the fact that I didn't, (laughs) we haven't. I always fight the urge when I get the question of how did you or how did you and your husband buy a ranch to be like, we didn't and just leave it there. But the truth is I have trouble diving into that conversation with people because it's very long and I just often have this sense that what I'm telling people is not what they want to hear because I think maybe I'm assuming, but a lot of times when I get the message, how did you buy a ranch? What follows? is an explanation of a family or an individual who is looking to get into agriculture and they want to buy a ranch themselves. And so what they're asking for is like, how can you help me buy a ranch myself? And to that, again, I always want to say, I don't know. (laughs) But I have been on quite a journey with this, starting our ranch business. And I think this is just a topic that is both of a lot of curiosity and also one that's kind of fun and thought provoking for me to dive into myself. I think, you know, everything's a mirror and I see a lot of my own thoughts and beliefs in how my thinking has evolved about land ownership or lack thereof. So (laughs) just kind of the background for folks who maybe aren't on social media. Here's the deal. I have been a very public rancher on Instagram, particularly for probably a number of years, I don't know, over five, I kind of transitioned from a ranch hand to a rancher on the internet. And we call ourselves, I call us ranchers without a ranch. It's become a little shorthand for me that I can use to kind of explain quickly, you know, we have a ranch business, we are ranchers, and we do not own the land in this video. Sometimes we don't own the cows in this video. We don't own the horses in this video. Like we do a lot of ranching and we have not so much ownership. (laughs) And it kind of breaks people's brains. I get that feedback all the time. Like what? I didn't know you could lease land for agriculture. I didn't know you could be a rancher any other way outside of like, I guess what we see on Yellowstone or whatever. And I get that. I didn't really know there was another way to ranch until it was my only way and we had to figure it out. And I think a lot of the really prominent social media ranchers are folks that either explicitly say or people can kind of read between the lines of they came into ranching with capital or they came in with you know, some kind of maybe a family inheritance or something that allowed them to basically secure this land and start ranching. So I think people understand it's not really feasible. You know, we're looking at business models from the outside and going, hmm, this doesn't seem to add up. And so we fill in the blanks with often correct assumptions that there's something else, you know, involved behind the ranch or behind the land that has allowed it to become that way. Especially, I think that's really to day with land prices being what they are and the state of ranching and agriculture being what it is, such a high cost of entry. It's not just the land, it can be the water rights, it can be equipment, the cost of the livestock themselves. Like it really is just prohibitively expensive to get into. 
So yeah, I keep saying this. We get asked a lot. How did you buy a ranch? Or what advice do you have for people wanting to buy a ranch? How'd you get all those cows or all those horses yours? And my first instinct, to be honest, is that I get my hackles up a little bit. I think for one reason is because I try to be very careful and mindful about how I present the ranching that I do. I never claim to own anything that's not mine. I'm not out here like, out on my land, (laughs) doing ranching with my huge herd of cows that I own all of them. I try to just kind of in quick and non-tedious, repetitive ways kind of continually mention like, hey, we have a work trade. I'm taking care of all these cows. Ours are the pink tag ones. Or, you know, here's my horse. He lives in this larger herd. Trying to just make subtle delineations and not claim something that isn't mine. And there's another piece that kind of makes me anxious about these questions because when I feel like people aren't getting that from my page, when they go on my page and just assume that we're these landowners of large acreage or huge, have these huge herds that we've bought and paid for, like I get anxious because a lot of people watch my Instagram, people in my own community, um, people that we lease from, people that we work trade with, and I don't want them to think that I'm representing the deal falsely. And I also don't want to give so much information that is really not anybody's business except our arrangement with the different landowners and livestock owners. So I'm trying to really stay in my lane and be respectful of all parties, but I also, there's such a lack of transparency in this industry. And so I want to talk about these things that we don't get to talk about that much. So yeah, I'll just be honest when people ask me, you know, are all those cows yours or how'd you get your ranch? I just get anxious. I get stressed and I get a little annoyed. I get annoyed (laughs) for probably here's the main reason. Here's the truth. A lot of times, and I can just tell, I'm just making some assumptions, but looking at sometimes the social media pages or just getting the information that people tell me, I can tell that the people asking the question of how'd you guys start your ranch, they have a lot more than we either have now or had when we were getting started. And so when they act like it's impossible, it annoys me because I feel like, well, it's clearly not impossible. I'm I'm telling you, you don't need to buy a ranch. We haven't. And then they kind of don't really want to hear that. And anyway, so I'm overthinking things as usual. (laughs) Yeah, this is all the stuff that runs through my head when I get those messages. Okay, so let's start to dive in about how we ranch without a ranch. I do want to say right at the top, there are pieces and parts of some of our work trades and leases that are really not mine to share. So I'm just going to stick primarily to my side of things. My husband has different things he's negotiated. That's really his business. Everyone in my life and family has been so graceful about the fact that I share a lot publicly and I want to keep it that way. So I'm going to focus on my side of things and the things that I feel are appropriate and fine to share. Okay. If you go back and you listen to the very first episode of this podcast, From Suburbs to Shepherding, I get into the story of how I got into ranching from the very beginning, nitty gritty. So I'm just going to give you the quickest little overview. I was a longtime ranch hand on this ranch in Montana that my mom had taken me to for a cattle drive when I was 12. We did a couple cattle drives. I started coming back when I was 15 to work in the summers and I had no skills whatsoever. Um, I could ride a horse. That was pretty handy. But aside from that, I didn't know anything. And so mainly my contributions, the quote unquote work, I mean, it is work, but I don't know that 
I was really someone that would have been hired for this job. Um, I just like did a lot of dishes. I cleaned cabins. I just tried to make myself useful in the very little ways that I knew how. And I came back many summers, pretty much every summer. And then it was like spring break and holidays and gap year. Like I was just out here all the time working and slowly transitioned from this kid that hung around and was like sometimes useful. Like sometimes I cleaned a truck out and that was nice to somebody that was, you know, you could, could trust with the horses, could sort cattle, could take the truck and go do this with it. Like I, you know, kind of grew into a ranch hand role. When I was 18, I met my future husband. Met might be a strong word. I stalked my future husband into submission and made him date me. He was on the other side of the gas station pump. I thought he was cute. I worked the Townsend, Montana whisper network to figure out who he was. We got him to get my number. Anyway, it was a whole thing. But our first date, we were just together from then on out. And after ups and downs and college and going away and jobs and all kinds of off and on, you know, over the years, we got back together when I was 27 and moved to Montana permanently. So at the time when I moved here, kind of for real, I stepped into my ranch hand job that I had been doing, but this was the first time that I was going to be there full-time as a real employee of the ranch, not just like summer, seasonal. And Justin was working for his dad, who is a farmer in our community and who has really built this amazing business from scratch. Very knowledgeable, very, just someone who, you know, we're so lucky to learn from. So Justin worked doing farming, primarily hay, some grains as well, but they grow some of the best hay there is. And so we, Justin and I, lived in housing on the farm. And this is one of the kind of common benefits of doing farm or ranch hand work. Housing is often baked into your deal. So generally, the salaries that you get doing that work, you could not afford housing anyway. So it's kind of baked into your deal. And it's mutually beneficial because a lot of farms have houses on them, like older houses. And so the farmer or the landowner kind of has a place to put employees already with lower overhead than, for example, paying for like a rent in the city. You know, I don't know. But basically, that's kind of how it works a lot of times. Like we have a ranch and and we provide housing, um, not here at our place. We actually rent a house in town for him, but we bake it into the job offer. Um, Generally, these salaries, especially when you're just getting started, are really low. And so, yeah, housing is included. A lot of times you get a vehicle um, and then, you know, just to use for work. And you might also even get like meat. So for us, like our ranch hand has a meat <laughs> like stipend. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those things where you don't get paid very much, but you kind of can survive. You have roof over your head, you got wheels and you've got meat in the freezer. So anyway, this is what Justin and I were doing when I moved here. And Another benefit of just kind of living on in a farmhouse like this, I mean, there was things that were hard about it. (laughs) No insulation (laughs) being being one of them, Um, but there's a lot of good things. So we had kind of these big yards and like these old corral spaces that were kind of, you know, in in bad shape, but they existed. There had been at one time like farm animals there. Um, There's no barn or anything, but there was kind of the basics, a skeleton of facilities for farm animals. And so a couple years go by, I'm ranch handing, he's farm handing. And 
I'm really wanting to get into wrenching for myself. I have a super strong entrepreneurial drive. It's just always been something that I love doing when I was a musician. I really loved the entrepreneurial aspect of that as well. So we got the opportunity to get, I say buy, but it wasn't buy. We got for free, for free sheep. There was a post on Facebook that said, you know, these horrible sheep keep escaping from our pasture. I can't stand it anymore. First come, first serve, just come and get them. So we did, took them home. And I had worked out an arrangement with my employers, the ranch owners, that as kind of a bonus, I could keep the sheep there. They had this kind of little area they could stay in. I could take hay. It's kind of hard to imagine, but on these larger ranches that have, you know, they're they're maybe producing 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 like tons of hay or more in a year, like the amount that sheep eat is pretty much like nothing. (laughs) And so um, it was great for me and it was good for them. It was like, okay, yeah, this is something that will make her happy, but also it's not like a real detriment or overhead added to the ranch. So I had these four sheep that all lambed and then I had eight or 10 all of a sudden. And after I had worked as a, as a full-time ranch hand for about two years, I believe, um, they have had a policy there that you get a cow for the years that you work there. So I got two cows, two heifers actually. And so a year later, give or take, they had their first calves and suddenly I was in the cattle business and Little Creek was just getting started. We were just doing lamb at the time, um, just pre-selling, oh gosh, it was like 10 or 15, you know, lamb boxes that first year. It was very small, but I immediately had turned that into a business where we were doing grass-fed lamb. And it was just kind of built into my deal as part of my work as a ranch hand. But pretty quickly, our revenue for Little Creek started to get close to my salary as a ranch hand. And of course, I had all these expenses, but there's this kind of beautiful thing about not having that much you have like nothing to lose. I mean, I I really felt that in the beginning of like, what the heck, you know, I'll be a ranch hand. I have nothing to lose. What the heck? I'll start a business. I have nothing to lose. Like I'd put a few thousand dollars on a credit card to get some infrastructure right in the beginning. But I really, I was not in debt to anything. I didn't have any money. You know, I had a couple hundred bucks in my bank account at a time. I mean, truly nothing, nothing aside from that. But I just felt like, eh, you know, I can sell the sheep if not, you know, I had nothing like to lose. And it's this beautiful, beautiful thing. And it it makes me think sometimes of the people who message me like, how do you buy a ranch? We want to buy a ranch, but we just can't, you know, it's so expensive. We just can't make the jump. We just don't know about the lifestyle. It's almost like golden handcuffs where a lot of those people are in actually a pretty good situation. You know, they might own their home, um, good jobs, benefits, all this stuff. And it's pretty hard to walk away from that. And so anyway, I didn't have any of that to walk away from, which I'm oddly grateful for now. So at first I went part-time as a ranch hand and was part-time with Little Creek. And then pretty quickly I went off their payroll completely. Now I still needed a place to keep our cattle our sheep. And I was also still very much a learning and I still am, you know, learning to ranch and, and needed to continue learning and and benefiting from the experience that I was getting on the ranch. So we kind of naturally informally kind of moved into this work trade arrangement where 
I would seasonally help on this ranch, particularly in the winter. So feeding the whole herd of cows in exchange for my livestock living there and getting pasture and getting hay. And this was really just mutually beneficial for all. You know, of course, for me, I had no other option and was and am beyond grateful for the opportunity. And for them, they had a former employee that knew how to use the equipment, knew the ins and outs of the operation, was trustworthy, and was invested in the herd. Like my cows were in there too. You know, I I care if there's mineral and salt in the tub. I care if the stream is flowing right. My cows are there too. I cared before I had cows, but I, you know, you really care extra. I had skin in the game. So it's really mutually beneficial. And this is how I grew our beef and lamb business in the early years. Even though we, you know, we live kind of on a corner of Justin's family's farm, or at least land that they farm. There is nowhere here really to keep livestock. This is a farm farm and farms and ranches are not the same. And so this arrangement, this work trade with this other ranch was the lifeblood of getting Little Creek lamb and beef rolling. And the scale of things was so small in the beginning. So we were only processing, I mean, our first year, probably like, I don't even know, seven lambs. Our second year, maybe 15 lambs one steer like we we added beef in very slowly then it was maybe like five steers and 20 lambs you know so it still worked out that I was able to kind of work trade my way to scale a little bit kind of slowly over time but as the years have gone on I was always rubbing up against needing to scale faster than kind of the facilities allowed or the arrangement allowed. So ultimately there was more demand for our beef than it would have been fair for us to keep steers around, like more and more steers on the ranch owner's dime. I mean, I have still worked there six months a year seasonally to feed their cattle and our cattle. We've still been doing that work trade. I just pretty much wrapped up there for the, for this winter. But at a certain point you start getting a bunch of cows and it's like, okay, we've really maxed out what is fair to everybody here. So I believe it was a year ago, we started supplying our own hay to our steers. And we did that by getting our first official lease. So let me back up. While I have been over here learning all about ranching, Justin has been learning all about farming. So he has been for a while now wanting to kind of farm for himself a little bit. So have something kind of going on the side. And we have been really trying to like manifest a lease. Now a lease, think of it like leasing a car. Um, You can lease farm ground from a landowner and use it. You generally pay per acre and there's kind of set rates for the different types of land it might be. So if it's like highly desirable farmland, it's going to be more expensive. If it's just kind of rocky grazing land, it's going to be cheaper. Leases can look different depending on what type of agriculture you're doing. But um, yeah, for us, we were really looking for a pasture that we could seed and irrigate and maybe graze and also potentially get hay off of to feed our cattle. And it's hard to find a lease especially as first generation, new, new to agriculture people. Um, Even though Justin has been farming forever, he's always been kind of 
from an employee perspective and generally in our community, and I can understand this, you're like, hmm, who should I offer the lease to? The the upstart, scrappy person who has not proven they will do a good job ever before? Or the established operation that has all the nice equipment who can efficiently and confidently do what needs to be done on this land? Like, hmm, it's just not that much of a toss-up. And so I totally get it, but it's very hard to kind of get that first lease. And actually, Justin got it by just like talking loudly about needing a lease at the bar. And a friend of ours was like, Hey, wait, you guys are looking for some land. How about, how about this 20 acres behind my house that we just haven't done anything with in a long time. And so boom, we were, (laughs) we were farmers all of a sudden. And so we got this 20 acre lease that we seeded, we watered, and we just prayed that it would turn into something. And there were setbacks. I won't get into the weeds about all the weeds we encountered. We were determined to do this farming regeneratively, so no spray. But anyway, we just, and we got through it. We had a very successful um, first summer there ultimately, but it took a while and it was pretty expensive just because of my need to do everything without inputs and learning a lot along the way. We borrowed equipment to cut and rake the hay, and then we bought a very cheap little baler. And Justin made beautiful hay last year, and we have started feeding our steers our own hay. Choose Wisely is brought to you by my small business, Little Creek Lamb and Beef. The first Monday of every month, I pack and ship our beef subscription orders. These are customers who get a box every month or every two or three or four months. And we got the best customer review the other day, so I'm going to read it to you. Brenda wrote me and she said, Hi, I gifted the beef subscription to my husband for Christmas, and we look forward to every single meal we've made out of it. Honestly, these are the best burgers we have ever had, ever. I also love being able to watch the love and passion that goes into the food we are feeding our kid. And I told him the story of how it can all be traced back locally. My only wish is that we did this sooner. Thank you. That meant so much to me. We've been running our beef subscription for a couple years now, and I love custom packing each box. I feel like I get to know each family, who they're cooking for. I learn their favorite cuts, and we're swapping it up all the time, making sure they're trying new things every box. It's so fun. For a limited time, we're offering 10% off your first order over $100 with the code WISELY, all caps. That's WISELY, W-I-S-E-L-Y. Follow the link in the show notes to shop or visit littlecreekmontana.com. So yeah, I keep saying it's hard to get leases. I think it's probably the hardest to get your first lease. It's so interesting too, because it's not just the logistics or like your reputation in the community, like, oh, they're leasing that place and that looks good. It's also the energy, like our own energy that we bring to it. So suddenly, you know, we'd had our first season under our belt, made our own hay, and we have the confidence now to start approaching other opportunities that we wouldn't have had before. Like our energy changed and then kind of the response changed. So we got that first lease and then now we've gotten a second lease and actually maybe a third. We're kind of going through a lot of conversations right now. But it's like the opportunities are now kind of coming to us because we've been putting in the legwork and the time and and are starting to finally have all the hard work and effort add up to something now that we have 
I think, I hope, a, a positive name in the community. Okay, so something else about leases. We have been picking up leases that other people kind of don't want. So that's not to say these are bad leases. It's to say that there's not a lot of small scale farmers and, and ranchers anymore. That's just kind of the nature of the beast. In order to make money, you kind of have to scale. You have to have all this expensive equipment. And it's not worth a lot of the established farmers' time to pick up a bunch of tiny leases. So like in our part of the country, 20 acres would be a tiny lease. I, I know that might be crazy to some, but um, you know we're in the high desert. Like you don't grow as much grass as you might think on 20 acres. Um, it's not worth that for a really successful farmer to patchwork together tiny leases all over the county and they're driving equipment here and there and just doing a little tiny bit with each of them. Like they are going for bigger farming opportunities. And so we're picking up leases that are kind of falling through the cracks. And other people also that might be kind of on our level or a little more established might not want some of these leases because there can be like some logistical things with them that are tough. So for example, the type of irrigation on these leases that we have, it's like a little more labor intensive. So, you know, once or twice a day for an hour or two a day, we're out there moving water manually. It's it's a lot of labor and that labor is you have to pay people to do that work. There are other types of irrigation that are automatic. They're going to make the land and the lease more valuable, more expensive, and the labor way lower. So yeah, we've been picking up these type of labor-intensive leases or somehow maybe a less desirable situations, but that's what we've had to do to get into it. And it's been perfect for us because this is where we can learn with relatively low stakes. Like if we mess up on 20 acres, it's not the end of the world, which by the way, we did an awesome job <laughs> and the pasture looks great. I was just out there. But yeah, the stakes are lower. Okay, so... A phrase comes to mind when I talk about all this stuff, which is choose your hard. I hear people say, well, okay, you're saying, you know, just get leases. Well, it's hard to get leases. That's a comment I get sometimes on TikTok and Instagram when I talk about this stuff. And I just say, like, choose your hard. It's hard to come up with a down payment to buy land too. You know, it's hard to get leases. Okay. It's all hard. Like, <laughs> let's just accept that. For us, I'm really starting to believe that these smaller or less desirable short-term leases have some real major pros for us. So I said short-term and leases can be kind of any number of years. Um, they can be from one year to five or 10 or even 20. And ours are all pretty short-term and it's beneficial on all sides. It's lower stakes for the landowner. They can give us a shot, you know, for a year or two. And then if we do well, we can have the first option to renew the lease. Um, we can also, let's say we outgrow it. Like, let's say we take on a hundred acre lease over here and we don't have the labor to do the 20 acre lease that we used to do. We can kind of move in and out of, of what is right for us. And that's the real the real pro of these short-term leases. The con I would say is is a lack of stability. It it does come up. It does, you know, at night when I'm like mentally tracing all the things that I'm worried about, I do think like what if they say, you know, you got to be gone in 30 days or whatever. Like, okay, where would the animals go? But we've also been trying to build 
you know, resilience into our business. And so that means picking up, you know, a little more pasture than we need right now and, and, and creating flexibility and implementing grazing practices that add acreage without adding acreage. And what I mean by that is increasing plant growth, increasing available forage because you're regenerating the soil. And so you're actually getting more plant growth and more food for your animals, even if you're not adding any actual acreage. You could have the equivalent of 40 acres of feed on 20 acres if you, for five years, improve your soil health. So that is something that we're also really focused on to kind of build in resilience to our business. So yeah, it just feels, you know, all winter, (laughs) all winter, I've been worried about pasture. Like, are we going to have enough? What other leases are we going to pick up? I'm trying to scale the lamb, trying to scale the beef. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Justin just kept telling me like, we'll figure it out. It'll be fine. Which I find to be like, not reassuring. (laughs) And yet all of a sudden it's been like one month of spring and now we're, we're negotiating a few more amazing opportunities that we're really excited about. It's like the weather warms up and all the farmers and landowners are suddenly like, hang on a second, we got to get this sorted out. So these opportunities are finally presenting themselves and they feel, it feels good. It feels earned and we feel ready to, to take some of this on. And so that's our current setup for our business. We at Little Creek Lamb and Beef, which is me and my husband, a ranch hand and part-time help, we are ranchers without a ranch. We are ranching without a ranch and we're doing so at a pretty decent scale. We have great revenue. I'm not going to tell you exactly, but <laughs> we are scaling like crazy on the economic side because we are you know, we just can't keep anything in stock. We are processing, I don't know, I would say between 20 and 25 steers per year this year, trying to scale probably to like 40 or 50 next year. I mean, we just like never have any beef available. It just flies off the shelf so fast. Um, We have scaled up to a hundred ish ewes this year. We've almost doubled our flock and we've done that without a single acre owned. We have like a, a real business we don't own anything. We've got like payroll, (laughs) SEO. Yeah. It's just like crazy to me because I just don't see this model done that often. Um, or at least people aren't talking about it as much. It's not that prominent. And here's the thing that I think is really powerful. We have been able to do all this without debt. Now I have a little debt here and there. I have some credit card stuff, but we only went to the bank one time for a loan and they treated us so poorly and kind of almost like laughed at me. That was the feeling that I got in there when I was trying to pitch them my business plan of doing this grass-fed lamb with this heritage breed and doing natural sheepskins. They just, they were like, we don't loan to this kind of business. And so I did get an operating loan, but it was for so little. And I had to put up so much collateral that it was just like, it felt embarrassing and humiliating when I was in there. And so I did my best. I paid that loan off that first year. I think the loan was like $8,000. And I think I had 8,500 at the end of the year. And I just took everything and paid back that loan. And I was like, I am never (laughs) going back in there and getting another operating loan. And I haven't. So that has been 
extremely powerful for us where it's pretty unusual to have a ranch business of our scale and size without having debt to the bank. Um, most ranchers get operating loans, which is essentially what it sounds like. It's it's a loan to operate for the year because most ranch businesses operate with one paycheck a year. And a lot of farming is the same way. You know, you get paid when you sell your crop and that's once a year when you sell all your grain or all your calves, whatever it is. Because we had a different business model and, and we were doing like monthly beef boxes, I was getting paid monthly and I had less need for an operating loan. And I also was just so determined to not have one that we, we figured it out. And I'm really proud of that. So let's go back to those messages that I get. How do you start a ranch? So here's the deal. It's hard. It's way harder than it needs to be or it should be to get into agriculture right now. I wish I could wave my magic wand and change the circumstances, but I can't. But it's not impossible. I know it can feel impossible. It's felt impossible to me the whole time that we've been doing it. I'm like, this this is impossible. And yet we just keep taking one step forward and and putting one foot in front of the other and moving forward and proving that we can do it. Um, Here's the thing. You can start a ranch without capital. I know because we did it. And when I've talked about our story on TikTok, people will be like, yeah, well, Justin's a farmer. So you're just like getting everything from him and calling yourself self-made. And I'm like, sure. I definitely benefited from having a husband who knows agriculture, but he didn't grow up with livestock. He doesn't know livestock. I'm the rancher and we have a ranch business. Like it's beyond nice that I have a husband that knows how to fix tractors and we can get really cheap equipment and he can work on it. I mean, that has been so intangibly wonderful and he raises hay and we've been able to pick some hay up here and there. Absolutely. But there's a lot of people in this country with access to a few acres and a few bales of hay. And (laughs) I'll just say that I'm very proud of what I've been able to do with what I had. And I think a lot of us have a competitive advantage and it's just about looking at what it is and figuring that out. So anyway, you can start a ranch without capital, but you have to be strategic. I really recommend starting how I did with sheep, or actually I really started with eggs, chickens and eggs. You can start with bees, you can start with flowers, but here's what probably is impossible. Starting, diving in straight away, buying a ranch, buying a herd of cattle, driving around in a Ford King ranch with a big hat, Like that probably is impossible to do. And so sometimes I guess I feel when folks are like, how'd you do it? They're asking me how to do that, how to ranch, you know, like they see on TV. And that's, that's what frustrates me. It feels like maybe they're looking for a life hack, seeing me as I am today with the business that we have today. And it looks like we just stepped into it when, you know, you can scroll back on my page four or five years and see when I had my first egg, you know, from my chickens and my first egg stand. And I was making a hundred dollars a week selling pasture-raised eggs. They don't see the summers that I spent cleaning cabins and watching people work cattle in a corral, watching people move cattle on horseback, um, cleaning cabins, watching intently how to run events on the ranch all these things that have served me so well later on. I wasn't Instagramming, you know, looking back now, the over 15 years that I have been deeply immersed in this, in this life. And so that's hard to explain in an Instagram message. So yes, it's possible. 
if you're willing to be tenacious, aggressively pursue your dreams and make real sacrifices to get there, it's possible. And I really think that if we are so attached to this idea that we have to own a ranch to be a rancher, a lot of us will never get to live our dreams. It's been so powerful for me to separate my desire to ranch from my desire to own a ranch. And now, all these years in, when we actually have this big real business, and maybe even could at some point in the next year or two become landowners, I'm not even sure I want to now. Because here's the thing, we have this viable business model that cash flows. We, we ranch without the bank. We ranch with less stress. I don't owe the bank $100,000 at the end of the year. We have less risk. We are more scrappy and resilient for all these reasons. And I've been thinking very seriously about this thing that I've told myself I've wanted for years to want to own a ranch. Do I really want to? I don't know. (laughs) I think there's a a struggle for us now is that we are really starting to scale. And it's it's hard to do that without a, a true home base. We're scattered all over the place. We're kind of at other people's mercy. You know, even with equipment and hanging, we're often renting or borrowing equipment from people. But, oh, we, we, we can't let you have the swather or the hay rake until July. We need it in June, but but we need it in June also. You know, so there's there's logistical challenges that are popping up for us with these kind of work trade and and lease scenarios. It's all figure outable, but I can see now more clearly. Oh gosh, it really would be nice to own something that we could kind of make our own decisions on and not be so beholden to others, but. I I have a hard time with the idea of tons of debt. If you listen to the first episode of this podcast, I alluded to a major family, like my family having gone through bankruptcy and it being this thing for me that was really mentally, like just profoundly impactful of something that I was like, I don't want to live big the way that I've seen you know, my family live big because I think it makes you vulnerable. It, we They were caught kind of unaware and I don't want to be that way. I've always been pretty debt averse for that reason. So anyway, that's where we are. Um, I did want to mention, because I've gotten some questions about this too, we are exploring our options to try to buy land using the FSA, so Farm Service Agency. There is a program called Beginner farmer loans or beginner rancher loans, where you're eligible in the first 10 years of ranch business or farm business operation, you can apply for funding at a lower interest rate than traditional lenders with the caveat that you are someone that would be rejected from traditional lending opportunities. So if you can't get a loan from a traditional bank, to get into agricultural land, you may be able to get it through FSA. So we're in the very beginning process of that. And by beginning process, I mean, I've like talked to a few people, I've downloaded an application. We've actually been working more closely with a banker um, to kind of run our financials and just see what we might even qualify for. You can do 
100% financing through FSA. There's also kind of financing options where you can do like 50-50. 50% of your loan would be financed through FSA at, let's say, a lower interest rate, 3% or something. I don't even know what it is actually. And then 50% comes from a traditional lender. And that's the process that we're looking at. And that's particularly why we've been working with this banker. But we haven't made a move on anything <laughs> for so many reasons. Number one, land is so stupid expensive around us that it just, it wouldn't even like appraise, I don't think, for FSA. They'd be like, uh, no, <laughs> this is a bad bet for us to finance you to overpay for this land. So that's a big, that's a big thing. Um, also, if you're going through FSA, you're not as competitive. So my understanding is that it's pretty slow. You need to have a buy-sell, like a signed buy-sell agreement. So the landowner needs to already have agreed to sell you the land at, a, at this whatever price before you can even apply to get financing through FSA, which seems so backwards to me. I don't understand it. I don't know how you convince someone <laughs> to sell you land uh, without financing secured. I don't know anything about this kind of stuff, but basically that's that's the process as I'm learning. Um, the FSA doesn't do pre-approvals and they take really, they have long closing periods. So like you might take 90 days or 120 days or more to even get the financing to go through. And in this market where it's just crazy competitive where we're at, there's very few people that are going to want to put up with that and kind of entertain an offer from us. So, so we haven't made an offer on anything. We're, we're kind of keeping our eyes open, but we're not too aggressively going after this right now. And, and another reason is we like where we're at. I don't want to ranch in some ways the way I see a lot of other people ranching, which is, you know, full of stress, full of anxiety, you know, up at night. What are we going to do? How are we going to pay this back? I don't want to be in that situation. And even if I'm paying more per acre for leases, or even if I'm spending cash that it, you know, it's not putting it into an, an asset, I still, I don't have a lot of that same financial stress. And I'm, I'm afraid of that. And I know there's kind of a line at which you don't want to let fear alone hold you back from anything. That's kind of a tenet that I live my life by is fear can't be the only reason you don't do something. But it does feel to us that this traditional way that everyone has gotten into ranching has, you know, has had some pitfalls and I'm trying to avoid those pitfalls. And on the other hand, I actually talked about this with Kate Kavanaugh on her Groundwork podcast recently. I don't want to be too attached to the story of ourselves as being ranchers without a ranch. It's like I've repeated that so much that I've sort of been acting like we'll never own land. We don't ever want land. There's no point in even doing it. Like I, and my, I don't think my husband agrees with that, but I've really started to hold on to that phrase and that story about who I am. Um, and I think the reason why is it makes me feel like when I talk about us and what we do on social media publicly, I think I like the way I think it makes us look like, oh, we, we weren't given this. We made this. We earned this. We're first generation. You know, we didn't buy our way in. I feel like it gives us this, um, I don't know, street cred or something. And I know all of this is totally silly and bogus and representative of my own hangups. And so that's why I'm just, I'm trying to question my own attachment to the idea of ranching without a ranch. But ultimately, Detaching from the idea of land ownership has been kind of a beautiful exercise for me, at least. It's kind of, 
reframed things for me. I think in America, we have this tendency, like in our culture, to want to buy everything we love, everything we think is great and beautiful. We want to own it. And it feels like until we own it, it's not ours or something. But I really don't. (laughs) It's kind of a crazy idea to me that we think we own land. Like I, (laughs) I know that's so weird to say, and I know that land ownership is real, but like, we don't, we're just all here for such a short time and we are just stewarding. We're just watching it. We're just caretaking for the next generation. And when I, when I look at it like that, I can caretake least acreage. I can love least acreage. I can pour myself into it. I can increase carbon storage. I can diversify least acreage. I can plant wildflowers on least acreage. I can hope that the landowners may maintain it when we're gone. But I still feel that we've done our best, done something very good there. And I don't know that that because we don't have a deed, that it, it has taken away from our work. So detaching from land ownership in my mind has been a powerful exercise. And whether you know, we stay ranchers without a ranch, or if, you know, one day I'm enthusiastically, excitedly, unbelievably get to share with you that we've actually bought something. I'm really grateful for our journey. And I, I hope, especially for the folks that are hoping to get into doing ranching on their own, that, that maybe we talk more about this type of model um, and how wonderful it can be. And that it doesn't take away anything from you as a rancher. You're still a rancher. <laughs> as long as you do ranching. (laughs) Thank you for kind of holding that story and my experience. And thank you for joining me today on Choose Wisely. I hope your next meal is delicious and your next conversation nuanced. You can follow along with us on Instagram at choosewiselypodcast, and you can shoot us an email anytime at choosewiselypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for being here. See you next week.